Hey, this is Steve, and I'm the host of the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. This is normally the point where our podcast theme comes in with the resonant voice of an inspiring high school educator, Willie Jones. This is the fifth episode in a series of six of our most powerful podcasts from the first year of the Tabletop Inventing Show. Here's a sneak peek from today's episode. Once I sort of hit high school, I started building things like M&M color sorters where you'd pour M&Ms in one end and it would literally go through using a Texas Instruments color sensor and a servo motor would put M&Ms into different buckets. Once I got a car, I took all of the sound effects from Daytona USA, the old racing car game, made an eight-channel digital sampler and installed it into my car. So whenever you got into the car, my car literally said, please select a race course. And then you'd be sitting in the driver's seat and you'd go, uh, I've got to go to uni. I want to take the course to go to uni. Gentlemen, start your engines. And this is being broadcast by a PA speaker underneath the bonnet. So it meant that I could drive around the streets playing that. I rewired my e-tag, like the toll device in my car. So every time I went under a toll booth, my car went, time extension, and you had to floor it. To the next <laughs> so it's always, I've spent my entire life building. <laughs> I love Gray Bright. He is so much fun. His episode was one of the most high-energy, fun interviews we did in the first year. You won't want to miss this funny, high-energy interview with a lively engineer. Do you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Can a robotics engineer actually be any good as a stand-up comedian? And what happens if you retrofit your car with sound effects from a racing video game? Do engineers really play with Legos? And how do you make your fridge shut off automatically when you put on weight? <laughs> Listen in for the fun answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today is going to be a fun episode. If you're an inventor and a kid at heart, you will love today's interview. I'm reminded of a quote today by the late Randy Pausch, a computer science innovator from Carnegie Mellon. He said, I am going to keep having fun every day I have left because there is no other way of life. You just have to decide whether you're a Tigger or an Eeyore. For Randy, having fun was serious business because at the young age of 47, he died of complications from pancreatic cancer. Yet before he died, he had a chance to give his last lecture in which he discussed the importance of living life to the fullest and having fun. The dramatic circumstances of his last months compelled him to consider what was really important in life, and he realized that every single day is a gift. Some people, like Randy and our guest today, Gray Bright, just seem determined to find all the fun life has to offer. In our interview today, Gray Bright and I laugh all the way through, but we're talking about serious fun. Gray's creativity and mischievous ideas are infectious. Join us for a fun conversation about inventing, fun, and never growing up. 
So my guest today is Gray Bright. Gray is a robotic engineer, and he said he's been building electronics his whole life. The thing that was a little bit interesting to me that he told me was that he does stand-up comedy. Gray, tell us a little more about that. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me, Steve. So my background is, yes, by study, robotic engineer. I uh, certainly built things my entire life. I pretty much probably watched far too much Monty Python growing up <laughs> as a kid. That just sort of made me go down the path of comedy, started watching you know, the, the absolute legends of stand-up and for years was too scared to ever get up and then finally one day, I was living in Sydney at the time and um, got up on stage, had a, just an amazing time and um, have loved comedy ever since. So I think a lot of us would see that or hear that and I think it would freak us out a little bit, but... Did you have a little bit of a fear to get over? Um, it's like, horrible. It's one of the worst things you can ever do with your body. It's <laughs> not. It is absolutely terrifying. So my first was literally like five minutes on an open mic competition. I stressed for it for about two to three weeks. It consumed my every waking thought for the entire process leading up to it. And then even a week after. But the enjoyment of being on stage and delivering jokes and just being part of uh, almost like an, an art form that's been around for, for so long was just thoroughly enjoyable. And fundamentally, coming from a space of loving comedy and much preferring to watch comedies over dramas and just wanting to be consumed by it, it was, a, it was an incredible experience. And so I still perform. And um, even to the extent where I'm building a late-night talk show similar to a Jimmy Kimmel or a Conan or Jimmy Fallon, but for science and technology. So it's exactly the same format. We have comedy monologue, sketch, interview, sketch, musical act, but our guests aren't musicians and actors. They're robotic engineers, computer scientists, aerospace engineers, artists, mathematicians, scientists. It's, it's literally late-night talk show for science and tech. <laughs> That is really cool. Uh, I confess that I have peeked a little bit to see what you're up to over there. Who are some of the people you'd really like to have on your show? Oh, absolutely. I've got like Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, Sheryl Stanberg, Brian David Johnson. So Elon is, is almost the epitome of... I feel that engineers are the new rock stars. We're seeing a transition. On the fundamental scale, I think where this has occurred is at schools... It's no longer considered geeky to be into science, technology, math, whereas 20, 30 years ago, I think films like Revenge of the Nerds, whilst being there for the tech space, was actually a plight on people in science and technology. It put them in a bad light. I think we've seen the sales turn around and we're now seeing that, yeah, kids, if they want to learn science and tech, it's no longer frowned upon. Society as a whole is becoming more accepting of um, science and tech. It's no longer people in lab coats with thick black glasses and pocket protectors. It's now people like Elon Musk, who you know, co-founded PayPal, then went and started Tesla, SpaceX. Like, this dude is Iron Man. He's utterly incredible. And I think we're seeing that on the grand scale. And so, like, w when I run through this list of people, like Brian David Johnson, chief futurist of Intel, his job is to look 10 to 15 years into the future and predict how we're going to interact with computers. 
that's the type of person that we should be seeing on late night talk shows being interviewed. We should be hearing his thoughts on robotics, his thoughts on computational theory. All of that mixed in with the novelty of late night talk shows where we have comedy sketches, we sort of take the piss out of Kickstarter and we find what happened in Kickstarter and Indiegogo that week. A whole list of comedy sketches that are possible, but like people that we should interview. So another one would be Bobby Murphy. He's the co-founder and CTO at Snapchat. Snapchat recently being valued at $19 billion. He's also a mathematician. He was studying uh, maths at, at university. Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. Or we even go um, Bobak, who works as a systems engineer at NASA. There are so many cool people out there. I've recently had Brent Bushnell and Eric Gradman on the show, who are part of Two Bit Circus. They are the epitome of engineering rock stars. Also, we had on Christian Dommel, aerospace engineer with a focus on satellite systems. These guys, it's not boring anymore. These guys have such entertaining stories and are doing amazing, incredible things. I, uh, I very much celebrate them, and um, yeah, that's why I'm building this uh, talk show, The Tomorrow Show with Gray Bright. That's really cool. So, by the way, if you get Elon Musk on your show, you have to send him our direction because he's on my list. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right along with Bert Rutan. If you can get, well, I, I'll tell you what, if you get Elon, you pass him my way. If I get Elon, yeah. <laughs> I, I think what I like most about hearing some of the stories from these guys is just they grew up normal kids like us, and they just got excited about something, and they weren't afraid to try stuff, and they jumped in with both feet. And that's one of the things we like to talk about you know, on our podcast is, how did you get where you are? So I'm going to ask you, you know, where did you start before you were a robotic engineer? How did you kind of get there, and how did you get here to the U.S. doing what you're doing now? Yeah, for sure. So, look, I was pulling apart hi-fi systems as a kid. I, Lego, like I, I literally, this is, Lego has been such an integral part of my life. I, I know this, there's, there's no video to this, but that's literally a piece of Lego I pulled out of my pocket. I carry <laughs> Lego with me everywhere. Um, so I started playing with Lego, and then that progressed into, yeah, pulling apart devices such as hi-fi systems and so on, and not understanding how to put them back together. Then once I was about, oh, geez, I want to say about 10 or 11, I got my first soldering iron, and that was the start. There was an electronics retailer in Australia called Dick Smith, and that was where you could buy your electronic kits and build sort of those early stage things like flashing LEDs and uh, basically like the, the fundamentals of discrete electronics and early stages into microcontrollers and so on. And so I was just building things then. Once I sort of hit high school, I started building things like M&M colour sorters where you'd pour M&Ms in one end and it would literally go through using a Texas Instruments colour sensor and a servo motor would put M&Ms into different buckets. Once I got a car, I took all of the sound effects from Daytona USA, the old racing car game, made an eight-channel digital sampler and installed it into my car. So whenever you got into the car, my car literally said, please select a race course. And then you'd be sitting in the driver's seat and you'd go, uh, I've got to go to uni. I want to take the course to go to uni. Gentlemen, start your engines. And this is being broadcast by a PA speaker underneath the bonnet. So it meant that I could drive around the streets playing that. I rewired my e-tag, like the toll device in my car. So every time I went under a toll booth, my car went, time extension! And you had to floor it to the next <laughs> 
So it's always, I've spent my entire life building things. Mainly, and this is, I think, where the, the comedy comes into it as well. Nearly everything I've built has always come from a genesis of me going, oh, I wish that existed. And there's always been a fun element to it. So that's how I think those have interlocked. And then once I finished school, I uh, very much wanted to either go into business or go straight into engineering. So I went off and I got an um, advanced diploma in robotic and mechatronic engineering. And then on the, upon the completion of that, I had been working for Dick Smith, that store that I mentioned where I bought my first soldering iron. I'd always wanted to work there, and so I started working there straight out of school and was studying and, and working. And then once I finished studying, there was a graduate program, actually. So I spoke to them about it. I got moved to Sydney, did two years on a buying and marketing graduate program where I learned how to be a retail buyer. And then I ended up spending 11 years with that company, and I was the national buyer for consumer electronics in many different categories from computer accessories and software. Basically, that was the equivalent of Best Buy in Australia. We had hundreds and hundreds of stores. My last role in that company was running the private label team. So all of the home brand electronics, we had 1,500 consumer electronic products that we were manufacturing from China. And um, I ran the team that manufactured all them. So after 11 years, in Australia, when you work for a company for 10 years, they have to give you three months holiday. It's a crazy system that just exists in Australia. So once I hit my 10 years, I got given three months holiday, and I decided at the time that I wanted to go and do stand-up around the world. So I put myself on a US tour and went and did stand-up in the US for three for uh, three months, got back to Australia, decided that I no longer wanted to be with that retailer. I wanted to run out and try some other things. So I moved to the US with a manufacturer who was making a lot of consumer youth products, mainly for Barbie, Glee, Family Guy, Star Wars, Ben 10, all of these youth brands. We were doing Simpsons. So I moved to LA and set up their global distributions. Then about a year ago, Will I Am approached me. His team came along. He had some ideas for 3D printing and a retail store involving that. So I went on and was sort of in there and developed some different retail concepts for him that evolved into Internet of Things. And then finally, his brand I Am Plus, which is a watch device, a, a smart device that you wear around your wrist. So I was working with that, and now I'm running in a company called Joseph Mark, yeah, working on their innovation, working on projects involving drones. Uh, we make camera systems to map snow fields in 3D and uh, working on some apps with them. And then on the side, I own a selfie stick company called Groupie Stick, which you can get at groupiestick.co. And, um, and yeah, and getting this uh, show off the ground, which hopefully, no matter what, we're either going to like this, the Tomorrow Show is either going to exist as a, um, like a Wayne's World style or we're going to go big, which is probably what's going to happen and we're going to go out, set up a production house and start making these and then start distributing them either through networks or, or through our own distribution channel. So that's sort of, that's it. And fundamentally, I still build robots. I haven't stopped building. Absolutely love electronics. It's my favorite thing in the world. So I'm kind of getting the feeling you didn't really grow up anywhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. It's exactly it. I, so I'm, 
I'm sitting at my desk. If I look into my bag, I've got more Lego. I've got a Rubik's Cube. I've got about seven selfie sticks. There's toys. There's, I don't know whether you can hear this. There's old, it's just, I'm surrounded by toys. My dad owned toy stores. And so since I was as, as early as I can remember, I've been working in toy stores and everything to do with toy stores. So I have a very strong retail product background that is, yeah, completely mixed in with uh, a childlike wonder. Absolutely. Now, I, when you were talking about getting your first soldering iron, I got involved with electronics through our uh, local ham radio club, and you had to learn oh. a little bit of electronics. And so I got my license at about 10 or 11 and started going down to the local radio shack and buying, you know, the little, they had little project books, you know, about, you know, 30 or 50 pages, and they had little schematics, and I started building that stuff. So I, I actually built my first oscillator with a 555 timer and a little key. Oh, when I was about 10 or 11. <laughs> this is a good thing. I haven't heard a 555 reference in so long. I used it for <laughs> so many circuits. It was such a rad chip. I mean, it still is. It's just such a cool timing circuit. That's awesome. And this is the thing. So my thoughts around that, uh, Radio Shack was so vitally important. And, and for me, Dick Smith was very much the, uh, a very similar concept to Radio Shack. Radio Shack came out in Australia as a brand called Tandy, buying Tandy in their um, hundred stores and absorbed them into Dick Smith. But that, that genre of having to not only like get components and put them on a PCB, but fundamentally soldering them together, I think is one of the greatest things. I'm highly excited by things like Arduino and all that goes along with that. However, I think there's a lowering in discrete electronics. So I don't. I think a lot more people are just going straight to coding microcontrollers without having to go through the steps of working out resistors, capacitors, transistors, and, and how those fundamentals occur. But at the same time, you can do so much more with a microcontroller. So I, I think it's just a natural progression and coming from the generation that had to solder. Like if you wanted to do a complex switching circuit, you had to use gates. You had to bring out like, you know, the 4000 series gates and line them all up. Whereas now you can just do 10 lines of code and you've done exactly <laughs> what would have been done there. So I think it is just progression, but you've, you've made me reminisce with a 555. I, uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing is at the time, I totally didn't understand any of what was happening. In fact, I kind of remember uh, tinkering around with stuff, and I mostly took stuff apart. Not much of it ever made it back together again. I took my motorcycle apart. It, it never went back does. together. <laughs> I, uh, most of the toys I had, you know, at some point, they would eventually end up in pieces somewhere, and I'd, you know, harvest motors and... You know, I kind of understood motors and a couple other simple things, but it wasn't really until college, and I ran into some, you know, some other people that, that understood those things better because no one in my small town understood that stuff particularly well. And yeah. So I, I was kind of on my own. So those little books from Radio Shack were really, you know, my lifeline to starting in this, but they weren't quite enough. And I think today we just, you know, having all of these resources, the whole landscape has changed for, like you said, the geeks out there that want to go do fun stuff like this. Yeah, hasn't it? You're absolutely right. And that whole, that piece around 
having the, like the circle of friends was almost yours, or, or let's just call it your circle of knowledge came about by those that you had access to. And really, the only access that we all had was books from like the radio shacks of the world. I remember sitting down and, and having this like question that I just couldn't get answered. And it was it, the question was, which way should a resistor go? And I thought that they were like polarized or something like that. And I remember spending weeks, and I used to think that some circuits didn't work because maybe I had sold them the wrong way around. Obviously, there's no there's no polarity at all. You can put it either way. But not being able to just jump on Google and type, like if I typed in that right now, it'd say there's no polarity to them. You can put them in either way. But you had to go and fossick around. And I love the fact that now. What I consider, like, more often than not was time-wasting. Yes, I think going and finding answers to questions that you have quite often is a process, but for something like that, which was a really simple question and answer, I hated that it took me, like, three or four weeks to work out the answer, and I love the fact now that you can just Google it, and you're quite right, jumping on the website, and if you've got, like, a line of code that doesn't make sense, basically, if you can't Google a reason behind it, then fuck fundamentally it can't be done like <laughs> you just can't if you, if you dedicated a full day nothing else to trying to google like why can't this line of code do that then it probably actually just isn't possible in the software language you're using so it's a marvelous space that we're in now I'm really tempted to bring up one of our questions now, but I'm going to hold off just for a second because you mentioned something earlier that uh, we haven't talked about and I'm curious how in the world did you end up doing a show with Monty Python Oh, yes. This this comes down to a, uh, a level of keeping your eye on everything. So, how that actually came about was that I had tickets to go and see Monty Python. And uh, it was a show um, called One Down, Five to Go. And this was going to be their last show ever. They released knowledge about it a year prior to show date, saying, look, we're going to do three shows at O2 Arena. I saw that and I was like, oh my God, I've got to get tickets. I missed out on tickets. The next day they said, right, we're doing one more show. And I was like, oh my God, I need to go. I was lucky enough to get tickets that day. And not only tickets, I bought VIP tickets, which had like a meet and greet package. So I was highly excited about that. And that went through and it meant I was living in LA at the time and it was at, um, over in London. So I bought my tickets to get over there and I was only going to see this show. Then about six months or maybe four months prior to the show, there was a little announcement that came out saying that they were going to auction. There was 10 nights of performances. Five of those nights were going to be auctioned for charity. I saw that and I was like, oh, well, this is going to be utterly, you know, out of my league. I'm not going to be able to afford it. The first one went up to auction and he was apparently went for like tens of thousands of pounds, like an absolutely incredible amount. That was because they had done that at a celebrity charity auction. And I forget which celebrity purchased it, but they spent a lot of money. The, that meant there was four left. They then put those through local charities and they had an online eBaying auction. And it just turned out that I was lucky enough and probably uh, willing and just to have enough disposable income to buy my way in. And so that's how I ended up on stage with uh, Monty Python in front of 16,000 people. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. I was standing backstage about to go in front of that many people, literally standing next to Terry Gilliam. It, it was <laughs> absolutely ludicrous. Uh, absolutely. It's just, it's just an incredible thing. And then as I'm standing there, 
Eric comes walking past with a guitar, just playing it, and then we casually have a chat, and I can hear the roar of the crowd, and we're just casually chatting, then he walks through the curtain, then I walk through the curtain, and, oh, amazing. And we did the, um, it's called the Bruce sketch, sort of a, a, a sketch performed at, um, where it became sort of a, a new side of it was at Live at the Hollywood Bowl, and it had a song. It's, it's an incredible sketch. It's great fun. And ironically, features Australians in it. The entire sketch is actually about Australian philosophers. So it all... <laughs> That's really cool. We were starting to narrow our way down to some of the tools that are available out there and how you could Google lots of things. So you've got this interesting read on this. So in this digital age, you know, where we have Facebook and Google and Snapchat and Wikipedia, in that environment, what does it mean to be educated? Yeah, it's a highly interesting concept. I feel that to be educated in the digital age, if I wrap a boundary around it, I really want to focus on what it is to be able to pursue whichever section of education that you desire. So, And I'm not limiting this just to electronics or just to cooking or just to building. I think holistically... As we discussed many years ago, to seek education and to seek knowledge, it was absolutely bounded by not only your circle of friends, your circle of colleagues, it was bound by whoever you had access to and what reading materials you had access to. So there was a limited amount of information coming in. It's almost like 100 years ago, you've got someone in England who had a question about someone in India, and only the person in India could answer it. That person in England would have a terrifically hard time of getting the answer without having to travel all the way to India and then find that specific person who had the answer. I think now, today, we live in such an era that that example that I just gave, you can break that down and relate it into so many scenarios. So, for instance, if I wanted to create a new telephone, I no longer have to sit here and go, right, I'm bound by the books that I have and the team that I have. Not only can I reach out vicariously to all of the libraries on in the globe, I can reach out to all of these other avenues. And so I think we have seen, whilst humanity is still the same, we've got two legs and two arms, I think the reach and the depth of education that we can get if we so choose is completely of a different nature. So we're still bound by the fundamentals of humanity. We still pretty much all, I would say, have relatively the same IQs. We are getting slightly smarter, but not exponentially smarter. So I think we're still bound by all of those premises, but the access and the ability, like that example before, where it took me three weeks to work out whether resistors were polarised when I was a child, had I had the internet, I would have solved that problem straight away and moved on rather than thinking that my circuits weren't working because I had resistors around the wrong way, which is fundamentally incorrect. I would have been able to go, right, it's probably the transistor or I've soldered a wrong component here or there. I think we're bound by many things that are the same, but I think the massive change is the ability, if you so choose, to reach out and grab new pieces of information at speeds that we've never seen before. 
So I've not asked this before, but it occurred to me as you were uh, giving those descriptions that there's another way to think about this in this digital age. I mean, businesses and ideas have always circulated around groups of people that work together to solve a problem. I mean, whenever a group of people gets together, you can always get better solutions if you know how to work together. So how has that changed for you over the course of time from starting taking hi-fi stereos apart to now where you can chase someone down that, that maybe you would like to have on your team solving a problem? From a low scale, I'll focus in on software. How we're seeing that personified is through stackoverflow.com where you have this location. Yes, it exists on the internet and it's a website, but I think it's so much more. I think this is the epitome of a very focused location of information. So it's where I go for most of my coding questions. If I've got like, how do I do this? Or how do I move this bit? Or why have I got memory leaks here? Stack Overflow is almost like having a large, massive group of people. And it's almost like, imagine having an office with 50,000 people in it that you can ask the question to simultaneously and have also left answers just laying around for you. It's like they've put post-it notes in the office that you can just go around and read. It's <laughs> utterly incredible. And I think on a low scale, I think that's given us this sort of just so very tangible experience of being able to share knowledge and quickly refine, like, why is this line of code not working? Well, because of this. I think if we then go up a scale, as I sit here, I've, I've got ideas of, of people I want to come onto my talk show. I think five, ten years ago, it would have been probably unrealistic for someone such as myself to think that I could actually have reached to all of these people freely and quite easily, whereas now they're a tweet away, they're an email away, their sort of six degrees of separation is now broken down to two degrees of separation. So even though I would love these people to be guests on my show. Fundamentally, it's the same type of thing. I would love them to come and educate and be part of my group. And I think having access to what I consider the entire world, I think is amazing because, yeah, there's, there's just like that example of the Englishman trying to get in contact with someone from India, I think 100 years ago, very difficult. I think now, utterly easy. It just comes down to procrastination now, where it's like, if you want to do something, we as society are running out of reasons why we uh, can't do things. Because <laughs> if you really put your mind to it, you have access to nearly everyone. All knowledge is accessible these days. If I wanted to jump on and do uh, the introductory course to a medicine degree at Stanford, I can jump on Coursera. Yeah, procrastination, I think, is becoming more prevalent because we're just running out of excuses. We can do anything. We really can. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had anyone answer that answer to this question, <laughs> that, that procrastination is the reason we're not getting... Yeah, because all of the other stuff is out there. And I think you're right. I, there's so yeah. much out there. And actually, the funny thing is I haven't actually been on Stack Overflow in quite a while, but I used to go there quite a bit when I was stuck on something. And it seemed like, like you said, the answers were always there. The guys you know, sort of seemed to know, yeah. you know when you were stuck. And there's the classic. So as you said, if you haven't been there for a while, it's still been around every single day, every single day, hundreds if not thousands more questions and responses in there. The depth to which these services can provide information is absolutely unfathomable. In terms of the procrastination, like one, in getting my talk show up off the ground, I'm going through 
the steps at the moment to work out whether we go straight to networks or whether we create our own production company. I have for a while been going, oh, look, we need the funding. Meanwhile, Kickstarter exists and would be the absolute perfect methodology, but I know that there's a level of procrastination inside of me that's going, no, 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 we'll hold off for the moment, but if, uh, <laughs> if I really sort of whipped myself around, I'd make a video, put it on Kickstarter and have this production company tomorrow. So it's one of those ones I think, yeah, <laughs> I do feel that it's, look, it comes back to what I was saying before. IQs, yes, have raised a little bit, not exponentially. I think human nature is always going to be there. So even though we, even if we tenfolded the amount of information available, I think humanity would still wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, have lunch, go to dinner, do it all over again. I don't think fundamentally we'd start to fly, live on different planets straight away. I think all of these things are quite slow, but the access is the big one. So if you want to be, like, if you just want to focus in on something and do it, then you have, it. there has never been a better time, ever. So basically it's, it's a perfect time to be curious and motivated is what you're saying. Oh, curiosity. I wish I had some way to put a tangible nature over the amount of questions I ask Google per day and just <laughs> fundamentally how much I'm a highly curious individual to begin with and I just love people say that I'm addicted to my phone it's not me sitting there looking at Instagram and doing Facebook posts and so on I'm continuously just gathering new bits of information that aren't being force-fed down my throat they're me reaching out again talking about 10 20 years ago where we were presented with a certain amount of TV channels that were pushing certain agendas certain shows certain theories and certain formats now if you really really like French drama you have like online distribution portals that will just funnel you thousands of those which is the weirdest genre I could possibly have picked <laughs> but <laughs> If you want to do, like, British comedy, you can jump online, you can get access to old-school Monty Python, you've got Red Dwarf, you've got, like, anything you want. It's incredible how, I think, yeah, the tables have turned where instead of us being thrown information, we are now able to actually reach out and grasp it ourselves. I love it. I love the fact that I don't need to go to Encyclopedia Britannica to find the answer to an obscure question. It sits in my pocket. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, so let's wrap it up with this last question. Thinking back over your experience with education from primary school up through getting an advanced degree in engineering and robotics, what to you is the purpose of an education? Look, I think a, a formal education is, is very helpful, but at the same time, I think there's lots of different options and I don't like to pigeonhole people because quite often I see people go, oh, well, you know, they, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And you're like, yeah, but they're off. They run a multi-billion dollar company. They've proactively done things and they've, they've taught themselves what they needed to learn. So I think, yeah, look, education, it means so many different things to me in so many different contexts that I think fundamentally education to me is actually about having a desire to learn more about a certain subject. For instance, like if you want to know about shoes, go and know everything you can, like not only about brands, learn about stitching, learn about cut and sew, 
go over, go see manufacturing plants in China, in Thailand, in India. Go and like experience that. It's not just about how good are you at memorizing a book. I've seen too often people go through an education that they didn't want to have and purely they did it because they got a, a score that allowed them to go to a certain university. They didn't want to do the course. They didn't enjoy the subjects, but they did it because they're good at memorizing information. They don't know how to process it, but they certainly are good at doing tests. And I think that's one of the ones which I'm not a fan of that. And mainly because I, I, I fundamentally am not really good at tests. And so I, I don't know, I'm never going to stop learning. So for me, if I think about education, it was only last year I completed a Coursera course on gamification. It was fantastic. It was a full semester just on gamification. And I did that purely because I'm absolutely fascinated by gamification, why the psychology of it works, how you can motivate people to do certain things for certain reasons. And so I went off and studied that just because I wanted to. That's what I get so excited about. Like if you want to, in that scenario, I wanted to learn about gamification. The lecturer, Kevin, was one of the, the absolute leading spokespeople of gamification. The examples and the systems that we had access to were incredible. I think that's awesome. So that's probably a better example of what I think the purpose of education is, is to, is to keep people driving. I use small bits of that course in my daily life every now and then. And if you stop questioning things, oh, I just, I don't know how you could do that. I'm fascinated by everything. <laughs> I'm absolutely fascinated by everything. Well, you definitely fit in the category of people that I know that never stop learning. So you didn't <laughs> actually need the four walls. You know, you were just out there looking. I mean, what you described a few minutes ago, you're off in your phone sometimes just finding the answer to something. And I, I actually find myself doing stuff like that and, you know, look up and wonder, does everyone think I'm on Facebook? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not on Facebook. I'm literally, someone's just said something and I, uh, I'm Googling it to learn more about it. You know, Philae, the robotic lander that landed on um, the comet, Comet 67P last year. I mean, just even jumping online and Googling, like, how do you, over the course, they launched Rosetta, 10 years ago, how do you launch a rocket with the objective of catching an asteroid 10 years later and then the final mission is to land on the comet? How do you, what? How do you absolutely do that? <laughs> and then that's where my mind then goes, aha, none of this is real. This is all the matrix because you can't do it. <laughs> uh, well, Gray, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And as we wrap up, what's the best way for our audience to connect with you? I think the best ways are, I do a whole lot of videos on YouTube. If you go to graybright.com, there's links there to a whole bunch of videos on, on things like how to make your house lights change color when the International Space Station goes over your house. So my house... <laughs> My house lights change color if the space station goes over my parents' house, my lights go blue. If they go over, if it goes over our house, then it goes orange. I've got things on there of how to connect scales, like scales that you weigh yourself, how to connect them to your fridge so that if you put on weight, your fridge turns off so that you're <laughs> to have a diet. <laughs> 
So definitely, uh, greybright.com has all of these. They're basically one-minute videos explaining how to do crazy home automation that adjust. They're all comedy. They're all good fun, but it's real technology and doing real things. And then hopefully we'll have the tomorrow show, but the best way is greybright.com or follow me on Instagram or Twitter or hit me up on Facebook. Yeah, any of those methods. All right, well, we will link that up in the show notes. Thank you so much, Gray. I appreciate you taking a few minutes, and this was a lot of fun. Steve, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Gray Bright is one of my favorite guests. He made me laugh all the way through, and I have always been inspired at how early his engineering ideas began. If you want to inspire a young inventor you know to pursue their dreams just like Gray has, you need to know about the Resonance Innovation Fellowship. This next year, we'll be taking a select group of 10 to 15 teens on a journey of self-discovery, excellence with integrity, and innovation leadership. This is not a club, a social gathering, or homework tutoring. The students in the Resonance Innovation Fellowship will be on a quest to find impact and world change through the backdrop of technology. To find out more, email me at stevecurdy at ttinvent.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-U-R-T-I at T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com. Don't wonder about the future. Email us and we'll help you create it.